0: For what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. How many of you guys know this song? Oh boy. Okay. If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows, I took the blows, and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. Some of you may know the song. Originally, yes, originally written for Frank Sinatra. Not Frank Sinatra's song, uh, you know, he didn't write it himself, but it was written for him in the late 1960s. And the song, with its main theme of rugged individualism, self-sufficiency and self-reliance, it really captures the American spirit. And in many ways, the human spirit. Perhaps perhaps we too desire to sing along with Sinatra and belt out, I faced it all and I stood tall and did it my way. But is doing things our way really the best way? The passage we look at this morning actually addresses this. It's in Genesis chapter 27. You can go ahead and turn there. And in this chapter, we see four people... Each planning their own charted course, each careful step, and without doubt doing things their way, declaring their independence from God, their self-sufficiency, their self-reliance, and it all ends up in failure. It's a famous passage here today, not because God's people are living by faith, but because they don't live by faith, but yet god is sovereign to work all things out and unfortunately we see where their own actions lead them to if this is your first time in are exploring christianity the book of genesis we've been in this book for quite some time it teaches teaches us all about god's lordship you know from the very opening it talks about how god made everything you and me included and he created us to be in a loving and perfect relationship with him right no strife you imagine a relationship where there is no relational strife but god's heart towards us was always good and we as men hadn't sinned yet it says there after god looked upon his creation after making everything he declares this is very good but it didn't stay that way very long the people he created chose to reject god's lordship and indeed do things their way And instead, they wanted to live their own lives their own way. And so they sinned against God, earning for themselves punishment, going against the only true king. And the Bible says that the punishment here is death and even judgment in hell. But thank God, God's love is not so easy to throw off. In his great love, he continues to pursue the people he made. Uh, even though they were the ones who rebelled against him. And so he pursues them. And at the right time, he chooses, look, I know that all of you are sinful, but I'm going to set my love on a people. And so he moves to choose Abraham, forefather of the Christian faith, the forefather of all those who would have faith, who would turn and repent and believe in God, Yahweh. And he's a sinful man. He's a sinful man that God yet chooses to save. As God is faithful to all of his promises. So he chooses someone. And then he sets his love upon them. And calls them to indeed live underneath his rightful rule. As he is the creator and the Lord. God had given Abraham the promises. That he chose to bless him with a people. That a number of people would come from his line. He chose to bless him with a land. And then he chose that one from his line would be the blessing to all the nations and so again we find ourselves very much identifying with abraham trying to those of us who are christians to live by faith and not by sight but yet oftentimes our faith wobbles doesn't it? and so it does for abraham and so it does for isaac abraham's son it does for all of uh, it does for all of isaac's family as we see all four of them and here we see some serious wobbling in genesis chapter 27 as they strive to live by faith and not by sight dependent really striving to rely upon god yahweh their creator their savior so let's go ahead and begin there and see what doing things man's way leads to or does it even pay off look there in genesis chapter 27 verses 1 to 4 Now, our passage is known for uh, the character's treachery here, okay? But it seems to start off with a very sentimental tone. Uh, Look there, 27 verse 1 to 4. When Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son... I mean, you hear all this relational language, right, about what he's doing. He's calling his very son. He's old. It seems like he thinks he's about to die. He says, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me a delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me so that I may eat and that my soul may bless you before I die. Isaac is an old blind man here. His life seems to be drawing to a close, even though he goes on and he lives a lot longer than this. He seems, by appearance, that things are going to end. And when the light of life is waning, as perhaps some of you have already been there, naturally you think about what kind of legacy you leave behind. You look at all of your life, You see, you wonder, what will those around me think of me when I'm gone? What kind of impact will I have made? How how, how will I have helped those who who are around me? And so Isaac wants to secure his son's future. He's thinking about all those things as it appears that he's going to die. The situation is genuinely filled with a type of love. Love for his son, Esau. This here is the practical outworking of Genesis 25, verse 28. It says there, you can turn there if you want, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Isaac was married to Rebekah. Isaac loved Esau, one of the twins, and Rebekah loved Jacob. So this is just an outpouring of this type of love that Isaac has for Esau. Come to me. I want to bless you before I die. Make me this stew that I love, right? The last meal. How many of you guys, or what would you guys choose for your last meal? El Pastor Taco from King Taco. Oscar would choose. I would choose that too. But you know what? Things are not as innocent as they seem. And it appears loving. But things are not as innocent as they seem. The way in which he loves his son is actually part of the problem. Can you believe that? The way in which he goes about loving his son is actually part of the problem. Isaac is an enabler by all appearances he seems to be one of those fathers who can't draw boundaries for their children which really means he can't draw boundaries for himself which really means in some ways esau has become isaac's functional idol i mean some of you guys know what this is like you can't draw boundaries for yourself some of you guys probably can't draw boundaries for your pet and so you need the dog whisperer to come and show you what to do to draw boundaries. And this here is, Isaac is struggling to draw boundaries with his son. Uh, one example is, you can take the issue of Esau's marriage. Um, it says there that uh, Esau went and took wives of the, uh, from basically the Canaanites or the Hittites. And the Hittites were considered as part of the broader group of the Canaanites. And it's interesting because Abraham, when he was looking for a wife for Isaac, said, I do not want you. He charges a servant to go find his son a wife. And he says, I want you to not take for Isaac a wife of the people. Because the Canaanites were cursed by God. But here Isaac, I mean, when when, when Esau gets married, Isaac is not even mentioned when it comes to looking for a wife for his son. And so Esau goes ahead and takes two wives from the people of the land. But not only that, I mean, in the text here, Esau is described as a gruff man, right? Who lives by his passions. He just wants this red stew. He lives by his bow. And here, Isaac, his father, seems to be driven by passions too. Like son, like father. I mean, look how he says there, look how he feels towards his stew there in verse 4. It says he loves this stew. The root word here is Ahav. Some of us have been attending our the earlier adult education hour, and we see there from Matt Chandler that uh, a love for a husband towards his wife is described as ahava. It's, it's the same root word there. Interesting, here you can have this type of love towards stew. So we don't really want to emphasize the word itself, but the context... That it's in. But here, anyways, in terms of this word, this conveys more than just liking something or preferring something. It has undertones of passions. So, here we go. Isaac is passionate about his stew. He's passionate, too, about his son. And his passions for his son seem to have clouded his understanding and his vision for what God wants of him. Uh, but, you know, where Isaac's guilt really shows itself is really in this entire uh, ceremony of blessing. That's where his guilt really shows itself. All these problems sort of peak its head. I mean, hadn't God already told Isaac and Rebekah which one of their sons the blessing would go to? So if you go back to twenty-five twenty-three, go ahead and turn back there. Isaac and Rebekah, they struggle to have children, and the Lord, by His grace, gives them twins. He also gives them a divine word, and, and God tells them, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So here God is just talking about who the promises are going to go to. started with Abraham, now it's with Isaac. And then it says, okay, now we're going to put the promises on the younger one, which was different than the cultural custom there. But it says there very clearly that the younger one is going to serve, or sorry, the older one is going to serve the younger one. So it's interesting here, I mean, with this divine word about his two sons, it's interesting that Isaac is so determined to see the son he loves Get the promise, even though God had already told him that it's not going to go to him. So he wants to hear in this formal ceremony, hand over all the familial leadership, all the responsibility and all the rights to the one whom God has said will not receive the blessing. I mean, keep in mind, Esau in a previous chapter, he, he legally gave up the rights to all of this leadership when he sold his brother his own birthright, right? The birthright of the older son, he sold it to the younger son, and with all of that, the birthright, comes all of the responsibility, He gives it up. He trades it all just because of stew, living for his passions. So you see how this love for his son has kind of captured Isaac's mind? Isaac genuinely probably wants to see his son secure in the future, well off, living well. He wants to see him thriving. But all of this leads him to try and circumvent God's word and will. Interesting, isn't it? He loves something, right? We all consider that love is a really good thing. But yet his love leads him to try and circumvent God's word and God's will. I mean, why else would he hold this formal ceremony of blessing in private? The patriarchs and the rest of Genesis, when they pass on their family blessing... This was a big deal, right? They gather all of Israel or at least all of the brothers and the wives and then they give the blessing. But here they're all off in a corner all by themselves doing this thing. This here is a collaboration meant to be kept on the down low. I wonder for you, what's getting you to circumvent God's word and God's will for your life? Is there a love in your life that you might think is genuinely good, boyfriend, girlfriend, a substance, money, security, some sort of idol, you feel like that thing is so good, right? Let's take marriage, for example. Let's take sex. Sex is good. Marriage is good. Sex is meant to be had in a marriage relationship. And so God says, that's where you ought to enjoy. It's a good thing. I'm going to give it to you. So we might genuinely want that and love that. But we're doing so in a very bad way, and that's leading us to circumvent God's will. God says he wants us to do this, but we say, no, I'm going to lay hold of that in a different way, my own way. I wonder where you all might be circumventing God's will, and for what What love drives you to disobey God? So with this collaboration meant to be kept on the down low, you, you know, and, and knowing that we identify here with Isaac in many ways, thank God for Christian community. Thank God that there are people who can actually speak into our lives and say, oh, you know what, the thing that you're loving, yes, that might be a good thing. But we want to submit that to God's will, right? And church community helps us kind of see things more clearly. So let's see what Rebecca says. Let's see what Rebecca, Isaac's wife, says. Um, does in response to this. This is in verses 5 to 13. And it says there in verse 5, now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So right, good, great, what a wonderful thing. It's God's grace that you have someone hearing how someone is going to plan to disobey God's will. I mean, thank God for all those people in our lives who know us well, well enough to know what direction we're going to head to. So we think maybe she will bring a word of sanity to her husband. Look what she does there. Probably, in a flurry of desperation, look what she does in verse 6. And it is not what we think she would do, right? We think, oh, she's there's this gap here, this space between... The first thing that Isaac thinks of and the second thing he's going to do. And right there you can say, oh, I'm going to pour God's grace and encourage him towards godliness. Remind him of the promises. Remind him of God's faithfulness and the fact that God is sovereign and he's good and he's already chosen. But then she does this. Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Right, so so I think there's a flurry of desperation when she hears something is at stake. She hears that Isaac's plan is going down and she assesses the threat, the threat that the son that she loves won't get the blessing. And so her plotting is sort of kicked up into high gear to ensure the promises of God stay with Jacob. All of a sudden, right, that the plotting increases all the more. It's kicked up into high gear to ensure that the promises that God had already reserved for Jacob stay with Jacob. As if that's even possible. I mean, how is it that we ensure that God is faithful to his promises? I mean, is God faithful to his promises because of what we do? Or is God faithful to his promises simply because of who he is? Rebecca comes up with this whole roost to deceive the old blind man, who just so happens to be her husband. Jacob, I heard you. I heard them trying to scheme, so this is what I want you to do. We know God has reserved the blessing for you, and now we need to grasp it. We need to seize it. You get the goats. I'll prepare the food. You pretend to be Esau, and bring it to your dad, and so he'll end up blessing you. There's so many different issues here. She's doing things her way. Uh, an obvious one, she's working directly against her husband. I mean, how many of you all would want to have the potential of marrying someone who's going to be working directly against what you're trying to do in a sinful way. So that's an obvious one. Uh, The second thing here is is she's a horrible example to her son. Um, She's discipling him in how to deceive, isn't she? And cunning, she says, I want you to lie. Let me show you how to walk in the ways of Satan. That's what she's saying. And... That doesn't always work out, does it? Just as the devil himself, who is under condemnation as we speak, knows that those things do not work out, to take God's word and say, no, we're going to go against that, here she seems clearly in sin to be discipling her son in the ways of the devil. I had uh, some uh, family friends who were driving home from uh, a desert town, and they were driving like speed demons, right, just to get back. Uh, not because of some life-threatening emergency, but just because they wanted to get to where they were going faster. Right? No real reason for why they were speeding. And so soon enough, as you would expect, the cops pull up behind them and they pull them over. The son was driving, and you had the mom, the dad, and the daughter in the back seat. And of course, you know they get they get pulled over. The cops go come around to the side. They ask them why they're speeding. And the parents in the back, in Rebecca-like fashion, tell them, while the cops are walking towards the car, I want you to pretend that you have a terrible stomachache. And these are supposedly Christians. I want you to pretend that you have a terribly painful stomachache. So then the cops walk up, and they ask the son why he's speeding. They look in the back with their flashlights, and they see that she's groaning in pain. I don't feel well. Everybody chimes in and says, oh, well, really, she has a stomachache, and we're trying to get home as soon as possible. And sadly, they get away with it. In one moment, one split second, in this quick decision to convince their children to lie, they taught their children that it is okay to lie in front of the eyes of God. It's okay to lie to their God-given authorities, and to do so when it serves us best. And so knowing this family, I always wondered why the parents were so surprised when they caught their children lying to them. When they themselves were discipling their own children in the ways of Satan. That's what Rebecca's doing here. But not only is she working against her husband, not only is she deciding her child and how to deceive, she's also working against the will of God. Not in the way that that Isaac is doing, right? Isaac knows the promise is going to go to the younger son. And so he's so decided to give the promises to the older son, the one that he loves. Uh, Here, Rebecca is actually working to see the one that God had chosen actually receive the promises, So she's not going against the promise or the prophecy, the word that God had given. She is just going against some other words of God, right? She's clearly lying here. She's holding on to some of God's commands while freely breaking others. So she might say, I believe that God, I believe God said the promise is going to go to the younger, but the one about God lying, that word, that one is negotiable. It reveals this attitude, doesn't it? God has promised something, but we need to seize those promises. I recognize that there are God's ends, and God's ends therefore justify our means, even if it's rooted in sin. But this is not true. So the things that you love, right? I mean, how are you going about the means of getting those things? The things that God has determined are good, Those things don't, the fact that God has already determined those things doesn't justify your means that are outside of the will of God, outside of the expressed will of God. So he gives us the end, but he also gives us the means. Right? Sex is good. We are to be married and enjoy those things in that relationship. It's not up to us just to simply determine what or the method or the means by which we lay hold of the promises. The good things he gives us the ends and he also gives us the means and it's all found here in God's word so on Wednesday night Bible study we begin by reading this book called uh, um, it's by Kevin DeYoung I'm blanking on the book's name what is the book's name just do something right it's basically how to determine the will of God and he says we're so fixed oftentimes on, on finding the things or concerned about God's will on the things that he hasn't revealed which is a whole lot of things, but he basically says, look, those things aren't ultimate. What is ultimate are the things that God has already revealed. So the issue is not necessarily, I need to grasp after a wife, right? God says that a spouse, let's say, is a very good thing to have. He might not call all of us to that, but he does say that that is a good thing to have. It doesn't mean that we go and grasp after it in whatever way possible. Let's say by uniting yourself or by pursuing a non-Christian... That would clearly be saying, okay, I recognize that having a spouse is a good thing. Now I'm going to go get me a non-Christian one. Because God tells us that we, uh, that fellowship cannot be had between darkness and light. Right? That would be a compromise there. Where in our minds we say, okay, I know the ends. And so therefore that justifies the means which I myself define. No, God has already defined the means and the ends. And it's all found here in God's word. So we looked at Isaac. We looked at Rebecca. She seems to be of no help to Isaac. Now maybe Jacob will be of help to her mother and Isaac. Right? This, this is the, this is just the next one. Maybe here in this maybe in between this gap where she comes up with this crazy plot, then now Jacob can pour in God's grace, remind him of the promises, say, "No, we're going to trust in God's sovereignty and His goodness, and God will take care of these things regardless." Let's see what Jacob does. Verse eleven. But Jacob said, oh, that sounds good, right? But Jacob said, so yes, maybe something good is going to come out of Jacob's mouth. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother is a hairy man. My brother's hairy and I'm smooth. (laughs) So here he doesn't care about the morality of the plan, right? He says, forget morality. He says, I want statistical success here, mom, Jacob, the hairy dude. I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself, not a blessing. So again, he doesn't care about the morality of this ruse, just its success rate. It's interesting there, his mother's response there, sadly. Look there in verses 14 to 17. Or sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, Go to verse 13. His mother there, said to him after he says no this is not going to work out mom in that gap maybe she'd say yes you're right i repent of my sins she says let your curse be on me my son and only obey my voice no really this is a good decision do these things bring them to me so rebecca is painted in this very bad light here and you read this in 14 to 17 um so he went and took them and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son and the skins of the young goats. She put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck and she put on the, del- uh, she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared into the hands of her son, Jacob, Then Rebecca took, then she put, then she put that which she had made into her younger son's hand and said, Obey me! Her heart is seriously exposed here with the prospect of her beloved son losing the blessing, if that were at all possible. So she resorts to deceit, cunning, sinning, and she leads others into sin and ends up dividing the family even more. Verses 18 to 25 here, Jacob cons his father. We see what he does. And the way this reads is that every step where there's this gap, where there's this pause, a chance to repent, Jacob is quick to con it every single turn. He's right there to make sure that this con goes off without a hitch. Look at 18 to 19. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul, that your soul may bless me. You hear that? There's some hesitation, isn't there? But that doesn't stop Jacob. And in the next handful of verses here, at every turn again, Isaac is questioning or testing to see, is this really real? And Jacob is right there present to make sure that this thing again goes off without a hitch. Look there in verse 20. Isaac wonders, how did you get this meal so fast? And Jacob gives this despicable answer. He uses the Lord's name in vain and lies and says, the Lord did this. The Lord your God did this. You got to realize that here he is a manipulator taking after his mother's uh, ways. Like mother, like son. It's not only the Lord did this, which is totally false. But is the Lord your God did this? I mean, what person, if I were to tell you that the Lord your God is doing this, right, automatically is like, oh, I definitely shouldn't question that. So he's manipulating walking in the footsteps of his own mother. And then he moves towards this, this, this issue of touch. This is a test, a touch test. Verse 21, Isaac wants who he thinks is Esau to come near so he can feel him. I saw this uh, funny this cute video where these little kids like four-year-olds they were blindfolded and they line, lined up a bunch of moms and uh, they blindfolded these kids and said okay i want you to go feel for your mom and so these little kids would walk up to the mom and literally they're just feeling you know their their pants and their legs and they grab the hands and they touch and they're like no this is not my mom and they go to the different mom that's kind of what isaac's doing here he's blind he doesn't know exactly what's going on, but he wants to feel, he wants to check out this man that doesn't sound like his son, the son that he loves, but yet he's doing the things that he told his son to do. Verse 22, because his hands were hairy like his brother's, Esau, brother Esau's hands, see, that's the thing there. So I've shaken, I've shaken the hands of a number of hairy people, as I'm sure you have too, but I'm pretty sure they didn't feel like a goat, <laughs> for a man who seems to live by his passions do you notice there that his senses all of his senses are failing him and that's kind of the point isn't it the very thing that he's supposed to do is to be a man who hears God's voice his hearing is failing him his touch is failing him his sight is failing him So regardless, Isaac tells him to bring the food and he eats his lentil stew. And then he goes to the smell test. Verse 26, Isaac wants who he thinks is Esau to come near so he can smell him. Uh, And there you get that pictured in 26. Then his father said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, this is what he says here. This is the blessing. Just, just, just put yourself in this position. He's dying. He's reviewing his life. And now he's giving a blessing to his son. See, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth, both important for the growing of crops and plenty, and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. I mean, just imagine the satisfaction in the moment. Thinking you have managed to sidestep the divine word of God and bless the son whom God said would not get the blessing. What is it like? To think, ah, so much satisfaction because I've outsmarted Yahweh, the Lord, your God. I've eaten my son's tasty meal. I felt his hand, smelled his garments, and proclaimed a blessing on him. And now I am ready to die. But there's so much delusion, right? He lives in this this made-up fiction. He's eating Rebekah's stew, not Esau's. He's feeling the skins of dead animals, not Esau's. And he's smelling leftover body odor and not the real thing. And all the while there stands Jacob. I mean, from God's perspective, imagine what a funny situation this would be. He's the one who's going to give the promises. He's the one who ensures that they go to the right son. And there's uh, Rebekah and Joseph, uh, J- uh, Jacob. And Jacob is standing there dressed in goat's hair, thinking this plan is really going to work. I imagine him kind of like being a life-sized Winnie the Pooh, but he's wearing Tigger's skin. Like he's standing there, this thing's going to work. It's a ridiculous situation in the eyes of God. Isaac right here is an example to us of what it looks like to live by our senses, our sight, and not by faith. To do things our way. We might might experience that little bit of supposed satisfaction in the moment, right when we think that something is going to happen. We just seem to outsmart everyone around us and outsmart God and tell all of our different lies and to hide in the ways that we do, fearing man, telling other people what we might think they want to hear just so we can get away with what we really want to do. For that one little moment, there might be that sense of sweet satisfaction, that sweet spot for a little while. Might even experience some degree of comfort as you live your life by your wisdom. Until you know that that house of cards is going to fall. And that's what's really going on with all of the characters involved. Isaac's, Isaac's house of cards is going to fall. Rebecca's house of cards is going to fall. Jacob's too... Is going to experience difficulty, and Esau, certainly, as we see very soon, uh, that too is going to fall. You know, we seem to go about our lives doing things our way, but Jacob here, he screams. He reminds us with a scream that our lives are, are dependent, they ought to be lived in dependence upon God, our very creator. The one who has created us and the one who has told us the things that we are to do to please him. How we are to live our lives in fellowship with him. And each one of these characters in this moment of sin are all declaring their independence, their self-sufficiency, their self-reliance, and doing things their way. That's That's what is at the heart of sin. Just think about your own lives. I mean, has it really paid off doing things your own way, regardless of what everybody tells you? bucking the trends, going against the stream, the current. I mean, lying. Take that, for example. How many of you guys have ever lied? Now, that really is doing things your own way. You say, you guys might have an expectation that you that you want me to live up to, and yet I'm going to lie to you and live in my own little fiction over here. I mean, does that really work? I mean, just imagine if all of us decided to do things our own way in that sense, and we just lived a life of lying, Would this be a community that we would want to live in? You ever want parents who who you never know if they're going to tell you the truth or tell you some falsehood? You want children who are going to decide that based on whatever they feel like they think they should do? No, God has told us we are to be dependent upon Him. He has laid out all the ways in which we are to live. Look at verses 30 to 38. Here the the houses of built by cars, all certainly do come falling down and Isaac realizes he cannot hoodwink God. Verse 30, As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, or Esau, when Jacob had, when Esau had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, Jacob, his brother, uh, sorry, I'm getting all these names confused here. As soon as Isaac had finished, finished blessing Jacob, Esau, his brother, comes running in from the field, right? He prepared everything. Verse 31 says that he had a pot of food in his hand. We imagine that he's getting excited here. Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. So he's thinking primarily about himself here. Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And in verse 32, his father says, who are you? Esau said, I am your firstborn son, Esau. Verse 33, then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and it shall. He shall be blessed. Interesting here, you see what this life of living things his own way does. He trembles violently. And then when he says, yes, and he shall be blessed, that's an interesting phrase here. It appears that Isaac knows, though this blessing ceremony was secretive, and it was nevertheless formal, and uh, all those things, the blessing was really given, even though it was given to the wrong son, at least in his own mind. But yet he has faith, to some degree that the blessings come down through the patriarchs. You know, some commentators, they think that Isaac, at this very juncture in verses 30 to 38, he has an awareness of and gives way to the sovereignty of God. In this comment, yes, and he shall be blessed. Despite all of his planning and conniving and even blatant disregard for God's promises, God will have his way, and here Isaac knows it. As the story unfolds, You see Esau's response there in 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me, O my father. That's the first time he cries out for blessing. And then 36, Have have you not reserved a blessing for me? And then verse 38, Bless me, even my father. And then it says there, He lifted up his voice and wept. Interesting that Esau there in verse 36 says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. There's a number of things that are wrong with his thinking here. Certainly Jacob lives up to his name as he grasps after his brother's heel. At the heels is what the name means. He is conniving, certainly. He is a cheat, certainly. But Esau denies all guilt right here. I mean, Jacob did not take his birthright. Genesis 25 and verse 34 says that Esau despised his own birthright. The chapter says that Esau sold his birthright. It does not say that Jacob took his birthright. And then on top of this, Esau already forfeited his blessing. Or sorry, he already forfeited his blessing with his birthright. He sold that for simple stew and then now... Now it's too late. Hebrews 12 verse 17 says, When Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He had already sold it, and all the tears in the world couldn't have brought it back. He had chosen to give it all away. So while Isaac tried to give him God's blessing that belonged rightly to Jacob, Isaac here can only give Esau, what God had determined him. Look at 39 to 40. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. So that's the opposite, right, of Jacob. Verse 40, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. You see the result of doing things his own way? I mean, you guys recognize what Esau is doing here? Before he cries out for blessing and after he cries out for blessing, he's just weeping. A life of trembling, a life of weeping when we live out from underneath the will of God. And you see this here in the concluding action in verses 41 to the end of the chapter there. Everyone's everyone's plan is kind of crumbling and everyone is experiencing to some degree uh, this trembling, this this weeping, the result of their own actions. With every turning scene, the family dynamics in many ways just gets worse and worse and worse. For Jacob and Esau, even when they were in the womb, we expect bad things to come about in this relationship. Jacob's name grasped after his heels. Esau's a skilled man of the bow and Jacob and and Rebecca, right? They show their genius in trying to uh, con a gruff bow and arrow sharpshooter, and all of this is heading in this direction as Jacob, Jacob's sort of house of cards are going to fall apart. Look there in verse forty-one. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him, and Esau said to himself, "The days of mourning for my father," because he thinks that his father's going to die. The days of mourning. for for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. You see the clash of the brothers, just as we saw with Cain and Abel. And just as the chapter begins, so it ends. Rebekah gets word, the next verse, that Esau is going to murder his brother. And so she sends him away back to where she came from. And says there, verse 45, she makes this promise that the scripture doesn't seem to say that she fulfills I will send for you and bring you back from here. Sadly, Rebecca, you know, as we know, um, never does call for him. Not only that, though, but her life as a patriarch's wife is never celebrated in Scripture. There's no description, no no triumphal story about her death and her burial. Only a passing statement that her bones are buried with patriarchs and their wives. There's no comment on her death. No comment on her real ceremony of burial, just sort of a passing comment there. Jacob may have may possess the blessing, right, which includes the fact that he'll be a ruler over his brother and he'll have many descendants. But now he has to live a life on the run, away from the promised land. Jacob, who conned his dad, will be conned himself in the upcoming chapter. And be conned by Rebekah's very own brother. Esau lives by his passions, will continue to give himself to them. Here, I mean, he's giving himself into this anger and this rage, and he's rising up to kill his brother, and all for something that he himself chose to give away. All this brings us to the point that we cannot do things our own way. We are not independent. We're not self-sufficient. We're not self-reliant. But we are dependent on Yahweh, our God who made us. And the one who provides all things. Did you know that your birth testifies to that? You don't cause yourself to be born. But we are, in fact, dependent on our mothers. Dependent upon doctors. Our our future death will testify to this. How many of us want a death where the only person who shows up is really ourselves? At that moment. No one else to celebrate our life. Because we did things our own way. We bucked all the trends. Disregarded everybody else. Refused to listen to other people. So given that our birth and our death testify to the fact that we are dependent people. Not self-existent. Not self-reliant. Don't let ourselves, don't let yourself live in the falsehood that everything in between is. Is. But remind yourself of what here this passage tells us, that God, even in the midst of all of this sin, is working things out to the praise of his glorious grace. We are all dependent upon God, dependent upon his word, dependent upon his providence, and dependent upon his sovereignty. Thank God that even though here every single step of the way, every character is trying to prevent things it would seem for God's will to be carried out, yet he works them all out by his grace. You know, we see our dependence ultimately in the gospel. God is a God who saves. So John 3.16, take that for example. For God so loved, I mean, we would not be saved if God did not show and shower his love upon us. And so for us to even be saved, we are dependent upon God's love. We're dependent upon God taking the initiation even. To say, yes, I'm going to set my love upon them. And yes, I am going to fulfill it at the right time. It's not we do certain things and then we rend the heavens and bring down Jesus Christ, but God sends His Son out of His love to die on the cross for our sins. As Martin Luther said, our salvation is outside of ourselves. So we as Christians, we proclaim the very fact in our faith when we trust on Jesus Christ, we say say and shout that we are dependent upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Dependent on him, dependent on the word, dependent on his loving providence and dependent upon his sovereignty, that nothing will stop his plans. Jesus Christ took on flesh, lived a perfect life, the life that we could not live. How's that for self-reliance? He dies the death that we could not die, bearing the weight of eternal punishment for sins against the eternal God. How is that for self-reliance? Independence? We need someone even to die in a way that we cannot. He bears the wrath that we could not. He suffers the punishment that we could not. All in effort that he might save sinners. We are dependent people, Christians. And if you are a non-Christian... God tells you. He calls you even right now to repent and believe, to turn and to put yourself back underneath the sovereign rulership of your very own creator and maker. Why would we go about living things our own way? Declaring that we stood tall, we faced it all, and we did it our way. You know what? Scripture says that that leads to only one place. If you want to be king, You set yourself against God, the true king. And there will come a time when you, just like Esau knew, there will be no time for repentance. So repent and believe, and you will be forgiven of all of your sin. And that true king will happily welcome you back into his kingdom as a citizen and as a son who will inherit the blessings of the kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we thank You that even in the midst of our stubbornness and refusal to turn to You, You interrupt what we do. You interrupt our course as we ourselves were plotting them, our pathways, our self-sufficiency, our self-reliance. And you reveal to us all by your grace and through the power of the Spirit that Jesus Christ is Lord. We thank you, Lord, that even when we are so wayward, yet you speak to us. And you speak to us so clearly and so ultimately in Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of all of your words. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that even when we were determined to go our own way while we were sinners, yet you, Lord Jesus, died for us. Lord, we pray that even now as we maybe be plotting ways in which we can sidestep the will of God or even go directly against it because we love something in a way that we ought not to love or maybe the object of our love in and of itself is not good but evil. Lord, we pray that you would interrupt our ways once again through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would use this community, this body of believers, uh, to help point us back in the direction that we ought to go. We even thank you, Lord, for church discipline that helps us do these things, that helps us point us back to the salvation that we can have in Christ and that brings about repentance and faith. Father, we pray that where you give us a gap, that by your Spirit you would help us, you would help bring Jesus Christ right in front of us so he would be made known as great and glorious, and that our ways would be painted as absolute foolishness, which is what they are. Lord, we pray that we would always desire to do things your way and delight in doing so as children who absolutely trust our perfect Heavenly Father, who is always good, always loving. And who's willing to exhaust your very own son, so that we as rebels would have faith? Lord, help us do things your way and delight in doing so. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ! In your name, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn, and as we do, let's rejoice in the fact that we do indeed have a Savior who died on the cross for sinners. We find ourselves identifying with every single one of these characters if we know ourselves well so we can indeed rejoice in the fact that we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. Let's stand and name.